Right, we are continuing our look at the promises of God. Uh, last week, the, the sermon was centred, obviously, on baptism. And today we continue our look at uh, the promises. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 with me as we look at another promise that is very closely linked to the first promise that I spoke about, which was it, uh, salvation or eternal life. And so today's one is very closely linked to that. And I won't tell you what it is just yet. I'll you to try and work it out first. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12 to 14. It says there that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed. You were sealed with the, that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll commit this time to him and we'll see what he has for us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, once again, we come rejoicing because of who you are and what you have bestowed upon us. Father, we thank you that you have granted us eternal life. We thank you that you have adopted us into your family and that you have made us your children. So, Lord, to that end, we will thank you for the rest of eternity, for your love, your grace and your forgiveness toward us. And, Father, this morning, as your children, we come before you seeking your blessing. We ask that you would bless us with your grace with your wisdom and knowledge, Lord, that we might understand your word, that we might be perfect children before your sight. We thank you so much for what we have. We thank you for this time. And we pray that our hearts would be open to your truth. We pray that the Holy Spirit would indeed be working within our hearts, revealing to us those things that are needful for us to grow. And we thank you once again that we have our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to that cross for us, leading us in your ways. We thank you in his name. Amen. Amen. Uh, two weeks ago, which was the second part of the series of, uh, of promises, I made the link between how trust is so critical to receiving a promise. And I gave you a few examples of, of how one uh, affects the other. For example, if someone came to you making you a grandiose promise, but you knew that their background wasn't that trustworthy or that their integrity wasn't there, you probably wouldn't entrust your time or your effort or anything else or your money especially to, to them. Now, I looked at that as an example. And acting on trust reveals faith. Okay, so if I trust someone, let's say I trust Alan, and Alan says, okay, I'll come by your place at, you know, nine o'clock and we'll pick you up and we'll go have a game of golf, or whatever it might be. Because I know Alan, I'll be, I'll hopefully be in time. <laughs> I didn't make that promise, you see that? But because I trust Alan, and I, and I know by his record that he normally keeps his word, then... I will commit myself to that. Does that make sense? So my level of trust in someone um, and the promise they make to me will reveal in me how much faith I have in that person. For instance, we've come to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Is that correct? So most of you I know on a personal level, and I know by your testimony that you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that means that we've believed his message. We've, we've trusted ourselves to what he calls the good news or the gospel. We therefore believe that he shed his blood on the cross in order to cleanse us from our sin. We believe that he rose again on the third day. We believe that he is the only begotten son of God, the only way to God, and the actual manifestation of God on the earth, the only one that has ever existed. In responding to his call to believe in him, we have weighed up our options. You see, because what he said is, I want you to entrust your soul to me. That's what he said. And he says, I'm trustworthy enough to rescue your soul and to keep it safe for all of eternity. 
And so we've taken that theme, which the Bible says is the most precious thing that we have. Remember, I gave you that example last week. I said, you know, Jesus says you can gain the whole world. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? Well, the, the obvious answer to that is nothing. You can gain everything in the world, which means your soul is more precious than the entire world put together. So what we've said is we've weighed up our options and we've said, you know what, I'll take that thing, which is the most precious thing I have, and I'm going to entrust it to you. And essentially we've said, here you go, have it. You do something with it, because I can't. And I know that you can make it something completely different to what it was before, and that's what I want. So I'm entrusting my soul to you, and that reveals my faith in him. Does that make sense? What I'm saying is, I believe that he's trustworthy. I trust not only him as a person of integrity, I trust the message that he's given me as well, and I trust every part of it. We believe that by simple faith we have received the gift of eternal life. And that is an awesome blessing for us, because God did not have to make it that way. God could have said, you earn your own way there. And we know we never would have done it. But God, in his grace and his love, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he knew that we weren't going to be able to make it to heaven on our own merit or on our own effort. And so what he did, he said, you know what? I'm going to send my son to do that for you. And he did it. And he won the victory for us. So whenever you read that Jesus has won and that we can rejoice in that, the Bible simply says that because he's won, we can... Relax a bit. Because he's already won for us. And by simply believing in him, God has made a way for us to enter into those doors of heaven. So Titus 1-2, which is what we looked at last time, says, In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. That was the, the pivotal verse that we looked at two weeks ago. God, who cannot lie, promised us eternal life before the world was even created. First John also tells us in 2 verse 25, and this is the promise that he had promised us, even eternal life. For us, that is huge, that we have received a gift of eternal life because God promised it to us. And the definition of a promise, just to recap on that, is a declaration or an assurance given by someone to someone else to either do something or for something to happen sometime in the future. And because God has perfect integrity, unlike man, not only does he always intend to keep his promises, but when he makes a promise... He has the wherewithal, he has the power, he has the knowledge, he has the wisdom to always carry it out, unlike us. I may make a promise to someone like Alan in the future that I will be, I'll be here or there or do something, but there may be circumstances that are outside of my control. And sometimes I can't fulfill my, my promises, but God always fulfills his promises. So if you can rest assured that every promise you read in God's word, and we'll look at these over the coming weeks, God keeps every one of them. Every one he keeps. Because not only does he intend to keep his promises, he always can. He has both the integrity and the ability to fulfill every promise that he makes. God is not a fallen man that makes false promises that he never intends to keep. God always makes good on his promises. And today we're going to look at another vitally important promise that we've been given, and that is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at how that's linked to salvation, how it's actually linked to this promise of eternal life. Most of you know the Holy Spirit is the third person of what we call the Trinity, how God has revealed himself to us in his word. The Holy Spirit was the one present in creation. He is the one who empowers every believer, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the one who led Jesus throughout his ministry. Do you remember? He was the one who came upon Jesus like a dove descending down when he was baptized. He is the one who was active also in the resurrection of Jesus. He is the one who came upon the apostles of Pentecost. 
He is the one who convicts of sin and convinces of righteousness and leads a person and points them to Christ. He is the one who teaches people the meaning of the Bible. In fact, he is the author of the Bible because the Bible says that he motivated men, godly men, to write that word. So he is the one who's authored the thing. So we have the privilege when we receive the Holy Spirit of him, the author of a book, which is the, the most important book in the history of mankind. We're being taught by the author himself. He is also the one who indwells us day by day. And I can go on and on. He seals us. He's the earnest of our uh, inheritance. He continues to, to work and lead people to salvation. The promise of the Holy Spirit is an absolutely incredible thing. You know, I wonder sometimes <clears throat> when the devil tempted Eve and both Adam and Eve fell, the devil probably thought to himself that he had dealt God a fatal blow. Can you imagine? You know, God creates this perfect universe a perfect world, a perfect environment, two perfect people, completely innocent in every way. He plants a beautiful garden for them, for them to live in. He has this perfect relationship with them. They would live forever with him. And the devil manages to bring all that crashing down. When he conquers mankind and causes them to obey him, rather than God. So he put enough doubt in their minds to actually cause them to doubt God and his integrity and his promises and rather to trust him. And so mankind fell. And the devil, we understand, won dominion of the planet. You see, when God created mankind, he made man the rulers of this world. He said, have dominion over everything. Rule everything. Instead, when we bowed the knee to Satan, we lost that dominion to him. And so Satan, you'll read in your Bibles, became the God of this world. And now, since he had caused those two perfect beings who were created in the image of God to fall, I believe, and this is my opinion here, that he had the ammunition to bring to the other angels in heaven to convince them to be able to rebel against God in heaven. I think, he, I think once he had managed to win dominion of this planet and subjugate those two who were created in God's image, I believe he had the wherewithal to go to the other angels and say, you know what I've done? I actually have no dominion of that planet. We don't have to be under God's rule. We have the ability to remove ourselves and so the Bible says that he created a rebellion in heaven. And the Bible then says that a third of the angels rebelled or chose to not believe in the integrity of God and rather choose to follow the devil. But God made a promise to the devil, believe it or not. Go back with me to Genesis 3.15. We take this as a promise to ourselves normally, but this is a promise to the devil, okay? Because when it all is revealed, and God, God already knew what had happened, he didn't have to ask the question, he already knew the devil had tempted Eve, he already knew that both Adam and Eve had fallen, even though they were hiding in the bushes somewhere. Instead, he, is, he asked them these questions for our sake, so we can read about what went on. God made a promise to the devil. Look what he says in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity, that's hatred, between thee and the woman, the one that you caused to fall, the one that, that you deceived. And between thy seed, the devil's seed, mind you, and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So the picture there is that Satan had thought he'd won a, a particular victory, but God made him a promise. And he said, you know, sometime in the future, there's going to be a person, a seed of a woman. And we know who that is. Because there's only one person in history who was born of a virgin. And he will bruise your head. But you will bruise his heel. In other words, well, what's worse? What would you rather have done to you? To have your head bruised or to have your heel bruised? 
Well, the idea is that the devil caused Jesus a bruise, okay, to put in a figurative sort of language, to his heel. He, he, he got killed, Jesus killed on a, on a cross, thought he'd won a victory, but Jesus rose again. But the, the wound that the devil was going to receive will be one to the head. There'll be no escape for him. Jesus won the victory over the devil. Satan, when you, when you think about um, what Satan thought he had achieved, he thought, yeah, I've done it now. And here comes God and he says, you know what? This is what's going to happen. He probably thought to himself, I wonder if you got a bit nervous at that stage, knowing the character of God. But his attempted overthrow of heaven, did it, did it succeed? No, he failed. He failed in his overthrow of heaven. In addition, he would see whether God would keep his promise. Well, God did keep his promise. When the seed of a woman, Jesus Christ, was born of a virgin in a little town called Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, he lived the perfect life despite all the temptations and all the attacks and everything the devil tried to throw at him. He didn't win. He could not win. And Jesus died for the sins of the world and defeated death itself, something that no other person has been able to do by rising from the grave. The devil knew at that particular point that he has ultimately lost the war and because God had fulfilled his promise. Now the devil knows that it's only a matter of time. He knows he has time. And so... You know how Jesus makes a promise to us. He says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The devil may try and destroy the church. He may, he may try and rip it apart, divide it, try to throw as much uh, deception as he can at it. But the, the promise that we get from Jesus Christ is that the church cannot be defeated. I'm not talking about an institution. I'm not talking about a denomination here. I'm talking about every born again believer who is in Christ throughout all the ages and even during the dark ages when the word of God was withheld from the majority of mankind when there was when it was held by the Catholic Church and so no one else was allowed to read it there were still believers even during those days even though they were being martyred they were being burnt at the stake and they were being tortured for what they believed in we know that he didn't have success in destroying the church Now, the devil knows it's only a matter of time, but in this time, before Jesus returns to defeat him and cast him into the lake of fire, along with all the other fallen angels, he knows that that's going to happen. But could he ever have imagined, I wonder, when he caused mankind to fall, could he ever have imagined that God would not only save <clears throat> mankind, and restore dominion of the world to man again, you see, who's going to be ruling the world? It's going to be man. Not me. But the one who now represents all of mankind, who became a man, the man Jesus Christ. He will rule the world one day. We know that. We, we know that one day he will come again as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we look forward to that day. But not only that, could the devil have ever imagined that God would actually adopt us into his family and give us his own character? I wonder whether he thought that. I wonder whether he thought, I've got these under my control now. They're going to be my slaves and all their descendants are going to be my slaves forevermore. And I'm never going to let them go. Instead, God manages not only to rescue us from the sin and, and, and his dominion over us, but he manages to actually adopt us into his own family. And not only that, he manages to give us his Holy Spirit. Which is an incredible thing when you think about it. Not only did he restore the world, and will he restore the world to us? You know what Adam and Eve didn't have? Heaven. The Bible says that we get heaven as well. Think about that for a moment. We were created for the earth, to have dominion over the earth. But now, 
we get to experience and own heaven as well. We inherit the kingdom of God, both in heaven and on earth. And that is something the devil could never have imagined when he thought that he had made us his slaves forever. The thing is that God did not have to save us by sending his son. He did not have to grant us even eternal life. He didn't have to give us back the earth. He didn't have to give us heaven, that's for sure. He didn't have to adopt us into his family. He did not have to give us the Holy Spirit as our seal. But you know what? He did. And I'm glad he did. Because that makes us so different. That makes us so special in his sight. The Holy Spirit is such an important part of being saved, but oftentimes it's so misunderstood. And my hope is that during this, this sermon and the next one, we'll understand him so much better and, and understand him from a biblical point of view, not from just some other point of view. Charles Spurgeon once said, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without fire, we are useless. And that's the perfect truth. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't do anything for God. The Holy Spirit is vital to being born again and therefore being saved. Without him, we are nothing. And, and Spurgeon is completely correct here. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. As we discover the amazing ministry that the Holy Spirit has toward us as believers. Romans chapter 8. Now before we read this particular passage, I want to explain to you, because there's so much stuff here, um, and, and oftentimes it's a struggle for me to know what to leave out, huh? uh, as much as what to put in. One thing to keep in mind concerning fallen man is to understand that we were created tripartite beings. We were created three in one being. Similar to God. Not exactly the same, but similar. We were created with a soul, with a body, and with a spirit. Okay, Not the Holy Spirit, but a spirit. So we are created three in one. The soul is not the same as the spirit. No, they're not interchangeable as some might try to teach. But when we fell, the Bible says that we died spiritually. So our spirit essentially died. It became useless. The spirit within us became inoperable. So in order to make us alive again, God had to revive that part of us once again. That part that had become disconnected to God. And it's a bit like to, I, I look at the, uh, I like to, to look at the spirit as our, that as a connection to God. You know, when you plug something into the electric, into the, uh, the meter there, the, uh, the, the plug, right? And you put the switch on, let's say you plug it into a fan or something like that. The fan goes, right? Mm -hmm. The moment you unplug that thing, the fan starts to slow down and eventually dies. Well, that's what's happened to us. Originally, we were connected to God in, in a very close way. The, the physical world was connected to the spiritual world in a, perfect, in a perfect way. And so Adam and Eve, their spirits were perfectly alive and they could draw on that power from God. They would have lived forever, Adam and Eve. They were created for that. But when we died, we were disconnected from God in a spiritual sense, and so everything started slowing down. So we don't live more than 120 or so years. But turn with me to Romans 8 9. It says, But ye are not in the flesh, which means driven or controlled by the flesh, which is just our which is just the, the flesh that we have with our fallen nature, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, what does your Bible say? He is none of his. Did you get that? To be, to be in the Spirit means that the Spirit of God dwells within us. It, it's also the same as the Spirit of Christ. It's the same Spirit. 
But if a person does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, they don't, God doesn't, they don't belong to God at all. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not part of God's family at all. Doesn't matter how hard you try, doesn't matter what type of life you live, you are not connected to God. You are not of God. To have the Spirit of Christ means that you therefore also have Christ in you. Look at verse 10. It says, and if Christ be in you, so if you have the Holy Spirit within you, you have Christ in you. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. When Christ is in you, this old nature that I have has been, has been um, judged already. And, and it's, it's destined to die. Okay, My body, which is connected to my fallen nature, will die. That's why we keep on dying. But the right, because the righteousness of God dwells within us through his spirit, our soul and our spirit are now alive as well. And this is the decisive factor for us as tripartite beings. We also know that the Holy Spirit will also raise us from the dead. If we were to die, we have that confidence that because the Holy Spirit is already within us, he knows us, he's connected us to God again, he will one day raise our bodies and give us new bodies, just as he also raised Christ from the dead. Look at verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken. Now that word quicken means bring to life your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Do you have that confidence? Do, do you trust that promise? Because that means that neither life nor death nor principalities nor power nor anything in heaven on earth or under the earth can separate you from the love of God. Death cannot separate us from God. Has no power anymore over us. Therefore, we should not fear death at all. Because death is only, it only means that we actually get to see him. That we're going to be with him. Because of the work of the Spirit within us, we know that one day we will be fully restored to the way God had intended for us to be. Fully restored and made new. And we will not only have a body, a soul and a spirit fit for this earth, we will have a body, soul and spirit fit for heaven. God gave us more than we could ever imagine. And we were the ones who broke his laws. We were the ones who rebelled against him and turned away. To illustrate this point, I want to give you an example. I want to liken it to a tree. Now, most of us understand how plants and trees work, right? Okay. A tree has a side that's visible and a side that's invisible. <clears throat> the visible is the one that we see. It's the one above the ground, right? We see the, the, the trunk, we see the branches, we see the leaves, we see the fruit of that tree. And you can generally tell the health of a tree by the color of the leaves and the fruit that it's got. So let's call the, the tree sitting on top of the ground, the trunk, the branches, the leaves and the fruit, the physical world. Okay, that's the physical world, the one we can see. But there is a part that we can't see. That part is the roots of the tree. They're under the ground. They're invisible to us, essentially. Okay? Are the roots important of a tree? What if you took the roots off of a tree and you just put the trunk on top of the ground? How would, the, how would that work for the tree? It wouldn't last too long, would it? And what would happen to the tree? Does it just go like that? Or just, if you killed the roots of a tree, what would happen to the tree? Think about it. It slowly withers and dies. The roots exist under the earth and they picture the spirit that was within us and is within us that draws life from that invisible part. And that invisible part is heaven. That invisible part is the spiritual side that you can't see with your eyes, but you know it's there. We know the roots. You might not see the roots of the tree, but you know they're there. Because the tree looks healthy, and you know that those roots are drawing that water from deep under the ground. You can't see the water, 
We don't see the roots working. You might not see the roots at all, but you know what? You can see the effect of the roots on the actual tree. And a healthy tree means it has healthy roots. If you cut off the water supply to the tree, the tree will wither and die. Alternatively, if the roots um, under the earth can't penetrate the earth, if those roots can't get deep enough into the earth to draw water, the tree will also die. If the roots don't do the job, the tree will wither and die. So when we think of the unseen part under the earth, that's like heaven. And man was created with a connection to heaven, to draw life continually from heaven like a tree draws water from the, from the ground, from under the ground. Okay? Somehow, when we fell, our spirits, which had access to God's provision of life, either could no longer penetrate heaven and draw life, they either rotted away or could not we couldn't do what they were supposed to do. So a man died. Without water, you wither and perish. But when a person is saved, according to the Bible, these roots, which weren't working in us, are somehow switched on again. Now, I've seen people, you know, trying to revive plants that are almost dead. What do they do with them? You put water, right? I've seen people actually put plants in whole buckets of water where they soak them, when, when the plant's almost ready to, on its last breath, right? And they'll take the thing with the whole roots and all, and they'll put, they'll put heaps of water around it so it becomes soaked in it, right? I think that's what happens to us when we get saved. Now, the question is, what is that water? I want you to keep that, I want you to keep that image of that tree and roots in mind when we read this next portion of the portion of scripture, because it will make some passages concerning the Holy Spirit and our spirit um, maybe a bit more clear and have more meaning for you. Um, that water that we draw on and that Adam and, and Adam and Eve could draw on was the power of the Holy Spirit. But then after their spirits died, they couldn't draw that life anymore. That's why we died. Okay. Look at John verse 4 with me, because Jesus begins, and I'll begin to share with this with you first. Jesus has an interesting conversation with a woman at a well one day, and he makes her an offer. John chapter 4, verse 10. I won't read the whole lot, because you guys probably know this story anyway. But Jesus asked him for a glass of water, or for some water. And then he says to her these words in verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. You like that? You know who's speaking about here? He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. Because if you come to Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. Now we can connect the dots here in this particular passage. He speaks about if you knew the gift of God. It's not something to work for, not something to earn, not something to gain merit for. If you knew the gift of God, which is salvation and eternal life, that salvation and that eternal life is linked to receiving this water. You can't have one without the other. Okay? Who is he speaking? When he, and notice he says, if you knew who you were speaking to, you would ask me of water. And who is he? Well, he's the one who connects... The thing in. Through him, when you're when, when we're in him, he connects those, makes those connections again. And he's the Son of God, the Savior of the world. 
the water that Jesus gives us is not, and some people get this passage so mixed up because they think of themselves, oh, this passage is talking about my thirst for God. That I'll, you know, that I'll, I'll always, it's not talking about that. It's talking about the Holy Spirit that's been planted within you that then comes up and springs up in your life and gives you eternal life. Because once this, and this is an amazing thing in itself, we'll look at that in a sec, is that when the Spirit is within you, notice how he says, that it will spring up to a fountain. Okay, you know, he says. He says there in verse fourteen. Um, not only once you drink this water, you're never going to thirst again, which means you're never going to lack for that water. It's always going to be present within you. But the water that I'm going to give him will um, will be in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. So you'll not only have that water within you, you're going to have a fountain of that water, always present, always in abundance. You know what we believe in eternal security? Because God never turns off the tap. Jesus never says, never says, um, whoever has this water that I shall give him shall never thirst unless he does a sin or unless he fails or unless he does. He doesn't. There's nothing in here. Jesus says, whoever receives this water will never thirst again. And it will be with him a, a, a spring a fountain of life, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The fountain, the water of life, is the Holy Spirit that we receive, and that water is never exhausted. It always keeps us alive. It always keeps us uh, in God's grace. That water is the water of life, the Spirit of God, given to every believer in Jesus Christ, and through him, the Bible says, we can actually worship God. Go back, just go down to verse 23 of John 4. We were in verse 14. Just go down to verse 23 for a moment with me. Look at what he says to the woman here. He says, but the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a... Spirit, with a capital S in your Bible, and they that worship him must worship him in? Spirit. Spirit. Big capital S or little s? Little s. Little s, which means our spirit. Must worship him in spirit and in truth, which means our spirits. Once you've had him, your spirit can worship God. The Holy Spirit gives life to our spirit, which was otherwise dead or inoperable. Mm -hmm. It is the Holy Spirit that feeds us through the word of God, because he is the author of it. And those words give us and continue to give us life. And that is the truth. That's why you can't worship God just in spirit. And, and once again, churches, for some reason, think that that spirit is, is emotion. Mm -hmm. That spirit is not emotions. I can get excited at the football. I started to get excited and then I stopped getting excited. <laughs> Do you see the point? Emotions, especially in the fallen nature, are very deceptive. If we follow our emotions and think that oh, the emotions are all I need or the emotions lead me to the truth, emotions never lead anyone to the truth. The Bible says that the truth comes from the Holy Spirit that has, that has quickened our own spirit and he leads us into truth. What is the truth? The word of God. So you can't worship God properly. You can't worship God at all without being born again. And not only that, you can't worship God in truth because you won't know the truth because he's teaching you the truth. Now, do you know all the truth? No, he's, but he's our teacher. And he continues to lead us into greater and deeper truths as we grow in him. Turn with me to John chapter 7 as we continue to look at this. John chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus takes this a step further when he preaches to the crowds in Jerusalem that have come there for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now I want you to listen very carefully to these words because this, is, this, help, this will put a lot of things in place if, you, if you're not sure about what the ministry of the Spirit is. John chapter 7, verse 37, he says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And look at what John says. 
But this spake he of the Spirit, capital S, which they that believed on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you that living water, but they weren't going to get it right then and there. Because he wasn't yet glorified. He hadn't died for the sins of the world. He hasn't re resurrected from that grave. And he hadn't ascended into heaven and become glorified. And that's the pivotal point in this whole story here. Because the Holy Spirit did not have this ministry in the Old Testament. People will always say the same way. By grace through faith. But they had to wait. They weren't born again. You won't find the phrase born again in the Old Testament. You won't find anything about the Holy Spirit sealing someone, filling someone, being baptized in the Spirit. It's completely different. And just as the people in Jesus, they had to wait. Because he said, the Apostle John says here, he spoke of the Spirit that they should receive. Right? And he says they should receive it, but it was not yet given. They had to wait. Until Jesus ascended into heaven or was glorified. Jesus can provide the water for all those who thirst. He is the source of life. People are spiritually dead like a withered plant desperate for some rain and moisture to give it life. We are the same without Jesus. So Jesus offers all who come to him and simply believe in him that water of life which is the Holy Spirit. And not only this which he gives freely, but he'll fill you up and have you'll have so much of it that you will become a channel, a fountain of this life that actually brings life to other people as well. Through our words, through our actions. That fountain, that, that source of truth, that reveals truth to us, and you are a channel of blessing for other people. A lot of Christians don't understand that. They'd rather lock themselves up in a, you know, in a room somewhere and just wait out the days until you know, that final day. Don't lock yourself up in a room because the Bible says that the, the rivers of water flow from you. We aren't the creators of that water, but when you're saved, you become a channel to other people. So by our words, when people see us, they see, isn't our whole desire in life to look like Christ in this world? For when people see us and hear us and, 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 and communicate with us that they look, they see Christ? Yes. And who is working within us to make us look like Christ, if not the Holy Spirit? That's exactly what this scripture is about. That whoever receives that Holy Spirit within them is not only sealed for themselves, but it actually becomes a channel of blessing to other people. They get to see that as well. They get to experience the Holy Spirit's work toward them. The Holy Spirit can use you to reach other people and, and, and have them saved. That's why when Jesus says to his disciples, he goes, they're going to bring you before, you know, before councils and before kings and, you know, and they're going to kill you and, and cast you out of churches and synagogues thinking they're doing God a favour. He says, but don't prepare your words beforehand because the Holy Spirit will give you the right words to speak at the right time. Do you have that confidence today that God will give you the words to speak? Someone's looking like, oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> I tend to fall over my words a fair bit. It's not that. It's when people see Christ in you. You don't have to have the perfect words. The Bible says that he is the one. And we'll look at this next week, some of these ministries in our lives. But even our prayer, when we pray to God, who do you think is prompting you to pray? Who do you think is giving you the words to even pray? And the Bible even says that even if you can't find the words and the words don't even come out right, that he even groans within us. He's the one who's praying on our behalf. He's praying through us. So we are given this thing freely. But only those who believe in Christ will receive him. And so this water that we get drenched in, right, becomes like a fountain within us, is, it, is the picture that we had last week of people going under that water and coming out fully wet. I don't know anyone who actually didn't get completely wet last week. <laughs> Maybe me, but 
If you went under, you were completely covered, right? Well, that's that baptism is like the picture of what happens to us when we're born again in the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in Him. We are completely drenched and surrounded with Him. There isn't a part of you, not even if you're Achilles, not, not even your heel, your, your Achilles tendon is missed in this one over here. Don't worry, the devil can't kill you like, like they killed Achilles because somehow he was held by his... I don't know, that's Greek mythology, rubbish. Anyway, um, but the promise of eternal life is indivisibly tied to the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he is a gift. But this action of the Holy Spirit was not present in the Old Testament. He didn't work the same way. Was he active in the Old Testament? Yes, you bet. The Bible says that he came upon people, empowered people. But this ministry that he has only began, that we had, that we experienced, only began after Jesus was glorified. The stilling, the baptism, the, the baptizing, the bringing of life to a dead spirit within us only happened after Jesus died, rose and then ascended. Only then was the promise of the Holy Spirit given. Now you think about this for a moment. Um, what's the gospel? The gospel is Jesus died, Jesus, Son of God, he was sent to the earth to die for the sins of mankind. On the cross, he shed his blood, which cleanses us from all sin, and he rose again the third day. Right? Do you believe that? Put your trust in him. The Bible says you're saved. What do the Old Testament believe? Did they have that? Was the blood of Christ shed? Did he die on a cross? Did he rise again on the third day? What do you think they understood? What they knew was a promise that God was going to send him. They didn't know his name. See, Jesus is the name which is above all names, right? They didn't have that name. They knew that God called him Emmanuel, God with us. So they probably understood that there's some aspect that God actually came down himself and did something. But they didn't know that his name was Jesus, born of a virgin called Mary in Bethlehem. They didn't know that he'd, been, he'd die a, a, a terrible death on a cross. They maybe read some of those descriptions in the Old Testament, that he would have his beard plucked out, that he'd be whipped and that he'd, be, that he'd die a miserable death for their sake. But they didn't know who the object of their faith was. All they could say is, God, I'm looking forward to that. I'm trusting in you to keep your promise to me. And I know that you're going to save me one day. Job says the same thing, doesn't he? So Job is way back in the Old Testament. He says, I know that one day I will stand on my feet after the worms have eaten me. I will stand on my feet and I will see my Savior. I will see my Redeemer face to face with my own eyes, he says that. He knew. He had that faith. So how were they saved? They were saved by grace through faith. But when Jesus came... The object of their faith was revealed. Where do you think he was for three days in the earth? What do you think he was doing? If not going to Abraham's bosom and, and sharing with them and saying to them, I'm here. That's what he was doing. Some people mistakenly think that when he said to the thief next to him, today you will be with me in paradise, somehow he was going up to heaven, right? No. Jesus, Jesus says to them, uh, he, when, they, when he ascended from the, when he rose from the grave and he's with Mary and Martha and, and, and those ones, he said, don't touch me because I want you glorified after to ascend to the Father. Well, if he'd already ascended to the Father, he came back down again. The Bible doesn't say he went to heaven. The Bible says he went down into the, into the lower earth. And what was he doing? He was telling all the Old Testament saints, I'm the object of your faith. I've done it. I've won. Now, you're going to come with me to paradise. And the Bible says that when he ascended, he led captivity captive, and they ascended in his train up with him. What a glorious thing. The Bible tells us that he spake us of the Spirit which they that believed on him should, should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Go to John chapter 15 with me for a moment. Jesus is, 
In John chapter 15, Jesus is around the time of the Last Supper. He's with his disciples. He's sharing with them that he is going to be betrayed and he's praying for them. But he tells them and explains something to them. He says in verse 26 of John 15, he says, But when the Comforter is come, the Comforter is the Holy Spirit. He goes, but when he comes, which means he hadn't arrived yet, whom I will send unto you from the Father, which means Jesus had to ascend to the Father first. Jesus sends him from the Father. Even the Spirit of truth, which proceeded from the Father, he shall testify of me. And you also shall bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So when was the comforter to come? When Jesus ascended to the Father. And then he would send him from the Father to the earth. Look at verse chapter, chapter 16, verse 7. John 16, verse 7. Jesus actually tells his disciples it's a good thing for him to go. Can you imagine these disciples who have been with him for over three years and he's telling them, I've got to go. Can you imagine? They would have been heartbroken. They, they would want him to, wouldn't you want him to stay? You wouldn't want him to go at all. I mean, he'd ascended, he'd won, he, sorry, he'd rose, risen from the dead. They'd seen him die. Now they're seeing him alive. And he's, he's with them for these days after the resurrection. But look what he tells them in verse 7 of John chapter 16. He says, he says to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you. It's good for you that I go away. For if I go not away, if I don't go, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Jesus had to first go away. Then he could send the Holy Spirit. And even though the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, we don't see people born again in the Old Testament. Not as we are. They were still saved by grace. But they didn't, the, the, the action of the Holy Spirit in this New Testament, this new agreement that we have is very different to the agreement that he had with them in the Old Testament. So look at verse 8, John 16, verse 8. And we'll read to verse 14. He says, And when he is come, look at what he's going to do. And we'll look at this in more detail next week. When he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. That's the devil. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. How be it, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So the Holy Ghost has this ministry today to lead people to Christ, to glorify Christ and to show them their sin. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit from heaven was prophesied in the Old Testament. Even for the Jews, the house of David. It says even they will receive this outpouring, even though they've rejected their Messiah for some 2,000 years. But it won't happen en masse until we, we go into, or the world goes into, the Great Tribulation. Turn to Ze Zechariah chapter 12 with me. Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12, 9. Now this he is speaking about the Jews, okay? He's speaking about the Jews at some future time. And Zechariah 12, 9 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So all the nations that come against Jerusalem, that's going to happen sometime in the future. And verse 10 says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him 
as one that is in bitterness for her firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadadrimen in the valley of Megiddo. You know what the valley of Megiddo is? Armageddon. So there's going to come a day in the future when the, when the house of David, when the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's not us, okay, are going to look, and verse 10 is an amazing verse because this is the Old Testament. It says they will look, look at this, who's writing this? Who's speaking these words? God, right? He says, God says, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Who did they pierce? God says, they will look upon me whom they have pierced and shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. That day may not be too far away, to be honest with you, the way this world's going. And I'll talk about this a little bit more in detail next week. But I want to just go back to the original passage I read to close up the sermon. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. Just to wrap it up for today. So this scripture says that we should be to the praise of his glory. Our lives should cause God to be praised so that he might be glorified who first trusted in Christ. So Paul says this about himself. And then he says in verse 13, in whom ye also trusted. That's you. Okay. In you also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Remember I said to you, there's no part of you that, that's exposed. There's no part of you that's, that hasn't been sealed. You know, when you, who, who's ordered from Amazon here in the past? And you know Amazon, right? Do they send, have they, do they send packages with the thing half sticking out, with the product half sticking out of the box? No. Because the product won't make it to a destination, right? So what they do is they have to get a box that's the right size for the product they're sending. So And they seal that box with tape and they make sure that nothing can, can get in or out that box. You know what's happened to you and me? The Bible says that we've been sealed exactly the same way. We're packaged already. Eh? To be delivered. And if Amazon can get their products to me, I will guarantee you that God can get you to heaven. That's your guarantee. God's a much better deliverer than Australia Post, I'll tell you what. <laughs> There's no delay, okay? We are the purchased possession. We are the ones who have been sealed. And the Bible says that we are the ones who have this earnest, and earnest is almost like a down payment or a promise, okay? This is the promise that we've been given from God that we have an inheritance to gain. And that inheritance is Jesus himself one day. We have heaven to gain. We have this wonderful future looking forward um, that we have to look forward to because we are the purchased possession. God has bought you and me with an amazing price and that's the blood of his own son. So this morning, the Bible tells us, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of spirit and of the spirit with a capital S, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. <clears throat> you know, a baby before it's born is in a sack of fluid. No? Amniotic fluid. And they're born into the world. That's the same as happened to us. We are surrounded with the water of the Holy Spirit. And one day, one day, we're going to be delivered to heaven. And so if you don't have the Holy Spirit this morning, the Bible says that you are not his. You can't get to heaven, despite your best effort, despite how much you think you're going to try and do, you can't get there. It's just too hard a task. Your spirit is, is inoperable. It doesn't work. It can't draw that life. And you need to be born again and saved and receive the Spirit of God. 
And if you receive the Spirit of God, Galatians promises you one thing. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You can call God Dad one day if you have that relationship with him. So my invitation to you, all of you, and Jesus is still there. If you don't know if you have the Spirit of God within you, if you don't know if you have eternal life, if you don't know if you're born again, please don't wait another day. Why would you, why would you wait and, and just wait there withering on the vine? Receive life. Receive eternal life and be transformed and changed forevermore. God bless you. Thank you. Brother Donald.